Are you a Christian because you feel that God meets your needs? Maybe someone said to you when you first were being introduced to Christianity, you should be a Christian because it will fix your marriage. You should be a Christian because you will find true happiness. You will be a Christian because you'll be able to manage your money better. Does the Bible have something to say about marriage, happiness, and how we use our money? Yes. Does God care about those things? I think to some degree we'd say yes. But if we treat God as a mere pathway to get what we want, we have missed the point of what God desires from us. God is more than capable of meeting our needs. We're going to see that in a passage that we look at this morning. But what he wants is our trust and our obedience. He wants a personal relationship with his people, not one where we constantly try to use him for our own purposes to get what we want from him when we want it. God will not be used by us. This morning, I want you to see that you need God more than you need God to meet your needs. You need God more than you need God to meet your needs. In these verses, we see this pattern of a complaint or a problem, and then we see God's gracious provision, and then we see this idea of testing connected with the statue. The first two examples are God testing his people. The third, it just says the people are testing God. And so we're going to see that pattern as we go through here. But I think we would all recognize that you need God to meet your needs, right? Your needs often seem overwhelming. What were the needs that were overwhelming for the people of Israel? Well, the first of them, obviously, we see here in chapter 15. They come and they need water. First of all, they have no water. Then they came to a place called Bitter, and they can't drink the waters of the Bitter Place because they were bitter, therefore it was named Bitter. Do we get the point? It was Bitter. So was their complaint and their grumbling before God, right? Just side note, this is the name that Naomi takes for herself in the book of Ruth, right? Mara, Mara, I'm bitter because God has dealt with me a particular way. Think about that the next time you read the book of Ruth. They grumble. What shall we drink? What's their next complaint, their next problem that they have? Chapter 16, verse 3. The sons of Israel said to them, Moses and Aaron, according to verse 2, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Their perspective was, we went and ate every meal at Golden Corral every day when we were in the land of Egypt. Not, we rummaged around in the cabinet for old stuff that was moldy and worn out and the things that we could scrape together because the second was their actual experience in Egypt, at least by the time they left, right? But the way they remembered it was, ate all we want, just sat around, could eat, could relax. How was it described earlier in the book of Exodus? Hard labor, difficult work. They said that to Moses and Aaron, you have put a hand in the, a sword in the hand of Pharaoh to kill us with all this hard labor. Now they come here and they say, would have been better to die in Egypt, at least we would have died happy and full. 
And their last complaint we also saw there in chapter 17. There was no water. They quarreled with Moses. Give us water. The people thirsted again for water. Verse 3. Why did you bring us out here to kill us with thirst? Your needs often seem overwhelming. Our needs are not, in our country to this point, typically it's not been, we have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. Sometimes it's not the thing that we want to eat or drink. Um, We've all been kids. We've not been a fan of something that our mom has made, right? But the problem is not that we're starving. The problem is that we have abundance of choice. So we're like, I don't like that. I like this thing instead, you know? Theirs was physical needs. We can have physical needs as well. But these needs often seem overwhelming. Things like sickness and aging and all of these sorts of things. And in the midst of those needs, those needs are very much too much for us, right? And certainly we can go beyond the idea of need to wants, and then that opens it up to all sorts of things. But let's focus simply on needs. Is God more than able to meet your needs? I think we see yes, according to these passages. How does he do it the first time? Verse 25, Moses cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree. He threw it in the waters, and the waters became sweet. What kind of tree? It doesn't say. What happened when the tree hit the water? It doesn't say. It doesn't explain the scientific process or the miraculous work of God. Uh, God's power is such that it really didn't matter what kind of tree it was. It didn't have to have special properties of the tree. God just says, take this, throw it in the water, and it will be fixed. And it was, right? What about the second time? The second time is more extended God providing for them. But look at chapter 16, verse 4. They say, you brought us out in the wilderness to kill us all with hunger. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain bread from heaven for you. He rains plagues upon the Egyptians. Now he rains bread and meat upon his people. Same God, same power, one in judgment, the other here in provision. Certainly in the book of Numbers, the quail are sent in judgment. But here, it is simply God's provision. So they're going to give you, he said, I'm going to give you bread And then in verse 13 through 15, it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? That's the word manna. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. God says, you're complaining about not having food to eat. I can rain down bread from heaven. I can send a flock of birds right there to your doorstep, and and you can pick them up and slaughter them and have meat to eat to the full. This is not a problem for me. I am more than able to meet your needs. And then in the last, how does God do it? Notice the parallels again between what God did in Egypt and what God is doing here. The Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. This recalls back to 
chapter 4, right? The end of chapter 4. Moses does the signs in front of the elders with the staff, right? And all throughout the plagues, there are signs in the sight of the elders of Egypt and or of the Israelites with the staff, God's power demonstrated. God heals the water by casting in the tree. God sends bread from heaven and quail. God sends water from the rock for us. God can provide our needs just as powerfully. God puts you in situations of need to test your faith in him. Why is this significant? God tests your faith to see if you will obey. Look at chapter 15, verse 26. Well, the end of 25 says, He made a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. Verse 26, what's the test? If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. God heals the water. God says, I'm your healer. God says, I will send none of the plagues on you. I sit on the Egyptians if you pay attention to my word, if you obey me. What else? does God test? Chapter 16, verse 4. I already said, I will rain bread from heaven for you. What's the test? The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. We always think of manna just like God rains it down from heaven, they go pick it up, and, and that's it. But God says specifically, the sending of the bread from heaven is a test to see whether you follow my instruction. What's my instruction? Gather it for six days. Don't pick up any on the seventh. And then in chapter 17, the situation is reversed, right? Verse 2, Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And then verse 7, he named the place testing and quarrel because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? God tests his people. God tests your faith to see if you will obey. Did the people pay attention to what God has said? In the end of chapter 15, it doesn't really answer that question, did they obey? There wasn't an extended discussion of did they follow all his commandments. There wasn't a specific command given. It was just, will you follow the commands that I give you? But then we move into chapter 16, and there's a specific test that's given. Verse 5 of chapter 16, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And then, chapter 16, verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. Take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much and some little. What else did Moses say? Verse 19, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. God said, eat all that you've got and don't keep it till the next day. And this provision of God that was perfect and amazing and delicious turns foul and disgusting and full of worms and decay. 
if they failed to pay attention to what God had done. So that kind of echoes back to what he had said previously. Did they continue to obey? There's this discussion in chapter 22, or verse 22 through 30, of this idea of the Sabbath, the resting on the seventh day. We'll talk more about that next week, this idea of Sabbath throughout the Old Testament and even in the New. But what were they supposed to do? Verse 23, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. And then there's this part in verses 32 through 36 about the keeping of some of it as a memorial. They would keep it with them. Later they would put it in the Ark of the Covenant as a sign of God's provision. Verse 35, I think, is also important. The sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. I think we skip over that part, right? Sometimes we think, well, God just did this once or for a few weeks or a few months. 40 years God did this. 52 weeks a year, six days of every, of every week. God rained down bread from heaven for his people to provide for them in the wilderness. Did they pass the test? Not really. They even went so far as to test God. God tests your faith to reveal himself further. He tests your faith to see if you'll obey. He tests your faith to reveal himself further. Verse 26 of chapter 15, he wants to show to them, I, the Lord, am your healer. Chapter 16, verse 6 Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. God wants to reveal that he is the one true God, that he is full of glory. Chapter 16, verse 12. The Lord spoke and said, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Chapter 17 and verse 5, the, the setting up of these things and the parallels between God's earlier revelation. He says to Moses, I am. He comes to the elders of Israel and he says, I am has sent me to you. Here are the signs. When he comes before the elders and does the sign and holds the staff, that should have been a clue for them. God is with us. I am is with us. God is revealing himself to us once again. Why does God test us? Not just to see if we'll obey, not just to reveal himself, but because our faith needs to grow. Did the Israelites pass the test? No. They came to this point where by chapter 17 and verse 7, they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Think about your favorite food. Somebody comes to you, they set it down in front of you. And your response to that person is, Do you even care about me? 
That's the attitude of the Israelites. Think a little bit further back. You, you don't know how your needs are going to be met. You don't know how you're going to even survive. And somebody comes alongside you and, and pours themselves out in, in helping you and taking care of you, meeting all those needs. And you say, where were you when I needed help? That's the attitude of the children of Israel right here. Why doesn't Moses answer this question for us? Because it should be obvious that the answer is, God has been with you the whole time. Pay attention! Of course God is with the Israelites. He saved them from Pharaoh. He's given them food to eat and water to drink. And He's going to keep doing that all throughout their time in the wilderness. But we forget God's work. We fail to see God's power in creation and in conscience. We fail to see God's provision in our individual lives. We go our own way. And as a result, apart from the gracious work of Christ, we deserve God's judgment for our stubborn blindness to His goodness and His greatness. Why doesn't God just come to the Israelites and say, You know what? I'm done with you guys. That's actually going to come up later in the book of Exodus. Not because I think God actually intends to wipe them out, but because he's testing Moses as well to see if he will intercede. We'll talk about that more when we get to that point in the book of Exodus. But why doesn't he, at this point, they have all these things that God has just done for them miraculously and amazingly and powerfully, and their response is to come to Moses and be like, Moses, you're a terrible guy. You brought us out here to kill us. We would have been better off dying in Egypt in this romanticized picture of what life in Egypt was like. Eating all we wanted, taking a nap in the afternoon, doing whatever we felt like doing. That wasn't their life in Egypt. But that's how they remembered it. And so they come to Moses, and ultimately, they're not grumbling against Moses, because Moses points it out in verse 7 of chapter 16. God hears your grumbling. What are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8 of chapter 16. What are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Chapter 17. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do that to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Why doesn't God immediately judge them? Because God is patient, because God is working toward a specific goal, because God wanted to teach them that they needed him more than they needed him to meet their needs. And we should see that lesson as well. Turn over to John 6 for a moment. Because there are fascinating parallels between what happens in John 6 and what we just looked at here in our passage in Exodus. Just like we were talking about in Sunday school, particularly with that first reference, out of Egypt I've called my son, and the point that Hosea was making about the Israelites, the point that Matthew makes in drawing a parallel between the experience of the Israelites and Christ himself. There is a parallel to be made between Exodus 15-17 through 17 and John 6. You often want God to meet your temporary needs. For the Israelites, it was water, bread, and meat. In Exodus. For the Israelites, for the Jewish people in John 6, what is it that they want? 
chapter 6, verse 14, the people saw the sign which he had performed. They said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15, Jesus, perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. John 6, verses 30 to 31, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus has just fed the huge crowd. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. The response of the people in Jesus' day is, do another one. What is it that we want that is a temporary need or that is the wrong thing that we're asking for God? I would argue that it is when we start with fix my marriage, make me happy, give me money or whatever else, fill in the blank. We are starting at the wrong place because then we're being just like the Israelites, just like the Jews. We want God for what God will do for us. And that's all we care about at that point. God wants to give you himself, not just his gifts. God still tests people's faith. We saw it in Exodus 16, 4, that I may test them. John 6, verses 4 through 6. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. What about for us? James 1.3, the testing of your faith produces patience. God's trying to accomplish something in us. Or even a closer reference in the life of Christ, Matthew chapter 4. Notice the parallel here in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Jesus is in the wilderness... 40 days and 40 nights. How long were the Israelites in the wilderness? 40 years. There's supposed to be a, hey, there's a parallel here. That's supposed to point that out to us. Verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is Jesus saying? Food is a need, bread is a need, hunger is a need. But God is more than enough than all of those needs, and God is more important than all of those needs. Not only does God still test people's faith, but God still wants people to know him. The Israelites, it was Exodus 16, 6 and 12. You'll know the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You'll know that I am the Lord your God. In John 8, 58, what does Jesus give himself the title of to the Jews who are questioning his authority? Before Abraham was, I am. Response by the, the Jewish leaders? Let's stone him. He's just blasphemed God. All he said was, I am. Yeah, that's the name that God gave for himself in the Old Testament to Moses, and Jesus is identifying himself as the God who worked among the people of Israel in the Old Testament. God still wants people to know him. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
So the obvious question, I think, is, do you know him? How do you know him? God meets our greatest need in Jesus Christ. The Israelites, what was their needs that they felt like they needed to be met? Water, bread, meat. What about the Jews? Give us another sign. What is Jesus' response to this grumbling of the Jews of his day, just like the grumbling of the Israelites of old? John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Verse 33, he said, The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. Verse 35 again, He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Water and bread. By the hand of God. Come forth from the rock, come down out of heaven. 1 Corinthians 10 has an important point to make along these lines. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. So, what do we need? Or rather, who do we need? If anything, this account ought to point us to the fact that we need God himself. We need God himself through the person of Jesus Christ, not what God can give us. But here's the amazing reality. When we have God himself... He can give us all that we need. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how he, will he not also with him freely give us all things? And what is part of those all things? It is the broad spectrum of Christian experience. Not just the happy stuff, right? Not just everything is going well, or everybody likes me, or I have all the things that I want materially, or I'm doing well in my job, or the list goes on. The all things that we receive in connection with Christ also, and often more importantly, includes the trials and persecutions that we encounter, the times of sorrow, the times of difficulty, the times where we question whether we have the strength to go on. All of that is part of what we receive in Christ because God is more than enough and God gives us all of those things in connection with himself if we are truly related to him. And so, I think all of us in here would answer this question, yes. Do you know God today? I think we'd all say yes. But if we were to say no, He is what you need. God Himself, not what God might give you to make your earthly life better. Think about the thing that you want, whatever it might be. The thing that you might put on your list for your birthday or for Christmas. The career goal that you have. The personal achievement that you want to accomplish with with, with fitness or with learning a new language or, or what a skill or whatever, the, the relationships that you would like to see in your life, think about all of those things and say, if I put those on a scale and I have relationship with God and I have that thing, that person, that whatever it is that I really want, which is more important? 
What's the starting point? It's my relationship with God Himself. And if we grumble against God, because we say, God, you're not giving them that thing, that person, that relationship, that achievement that I want, it reveals your heart. John 6, 41, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came out of heaven. Think back to Exodus 15 to 17. The Israelites were grumbling against Moses in the very midst of God meeting their needs. Grumbling shows our need all the more. But if you know him, and we would all in here, I think, claim to know him, then here's my challenge to you. When you hold out Jesus to someone near you, give them Jesus. Don't give them, Jesus will make your life better, God has a wonderful plan for your life, all of those sorts of things, because... The starting point is not what will God do for you. The starting point is, do you want God himself if he gives you none of those things that you want? Why? Jesus tests the people in John 6. Don't grumble among yourselves. Verse, he says many things about, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 52, the Jews begin to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? With regard to when he says, The bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down of he out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? When you are confronted with this reality of is Jesus himself enough for you, what does it do? It weeds out the people who really and truly want a relationship with God from the people who only want the perceived blessings of being connected with God. Why is that important? Think about it in terms of human relationships. You have a child. When the child is a baby, what does the baby do? It cries. It, it wants things. It, it, it needs food. It needs diapers changed. It needs sleep. It needs whatever else. Normal behavior for a baby, right? You get to be 25, 45, 65, and you still act that way? Do you really have a relationship with your parents if you behave that way toward them as you grow up? Not really. And if we treat God the same way, we're like that little baby that screams and cries when it doesn't get what, it's, what it wants. We don't really love God. We love God's gifts. We love God's blessings. Why is this a big deal? Because oftentimes in our hearts and in our minds, 
I think we have to face the uncomfortable reality that if God took away every blessing that he's given us here as his people in this country, some of us wouldn't want to be identified with Christianity anymore. Hopefully none of us in this room, but certainly people in the broader scope of Christianity, if it cost you more to follow Christ and you didn't have people think well of you and, and whatever else, and I'm not saying have people think well of you because of particular political positions that you hold and all those sorts of things, because that's not really even the point. What I'm saying is we are, we are having to confront with what's happened in the last three, four months the reality that there is an intense hatred and opposition for Christianity from people in positions of political power across our, our nation. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is their direct statement by their actions and by their words. You don't need to go gather in your house of worship. That's not important. You don't need to gather in church or talk to your neighbor because they might need your help. They might need to hear the gospel. You don't need to do that. That's not important. Health and safety, that's important. Protesting against injustice in very specifically defined circumstances, that's important. But being a Christian, that's not important. We have lived a long and comfortable stretch where if the society has not been on our side, at least it has not been openly hostile. And I think that we are moving into a circumstance in which society as a whole is going to become increasingly hostile toward genuine Christianity. And so like the Israelites, I think God is going to test our faith and say, do you want me for me or do you want me for the things that I can give you? And if your answer is, I only want God for the things that he can give me, then as soon as life becomes hard, you're going to turn aside. You're going to complain. You're going to not think it's worth it anymore. And I'm not just preaching this at you. I've lived a comfortable life. I've lived a blessed life. And that's hard to give up. But if we love God for God himself, if we are truly convinced that you and I need God more than we need what God can give us, then it's not as difficult of a choice as we think it is when we first look at it. But are you convinced of that? Are you convinced that God is enough, that you need God more than the things that he can give you? Do you believe his word? Those are, I think, some of the issues that a passage like this compels us to wrestle with. And so as you go out and speak of God to people around you, not in a harsh or careless way, Point them to God himself. Remind yourself in your own heart, I have God, he is more than enough, regardless of all these other things. You need God more than you need God to meet your needs. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to you, to see the ways in which Jesus is the only hope and help that we have of loving you for you and not for what you can 
give us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And no one comes to the Father instead of the Father's blessings except through him. Lord, may Jesus' power work in us that we might love you for yourself. That we might share that love of you for yourself with those around us. And if that means giving up many of the things that we've enjoyed in terms of freedom and blessing and abundance in purely temporary and and material terms, Lord, help us to make that decision gladly because it will make it all the more clear that God is enough whether we have homes and jobs and church buildings and all of the other things that have been comforts and perhaps even sometimes distractions from the reality that you are enough for your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.